Welcome to the IAB UK podcast. Hello and welcome back to the IAB UK podcast, your fortnightly digital digest. I'm Tom Stevens, Head of Marketing at the IAB. Firstly, you may have noticed I'm not James Chandler, our usual host. While he's temporarily written off with the flu, I'm stepping up to steer the IAB podcast through another episode. This week, we turn our attention to the digital skills gap, celebrate the return of National Anti-Click-Through Rate Day, and to round it all off rather nicely, welcome another esteemed member into our studio to tackle our 10 quick-fire questions. First up, the digital skills gap is a subject we've been focusing on here at the IAB following the release of a new research project with Middlesex University. So what actually is it, why does it matter, and how can we bridge it? Well, with as many as 88% of our members struggling to find qualified candidates with up-to-date digital skills, and 78% finding it a challenge to hold on to those that do, it's clear that this is one gap we all need to mind. To get the latest, I sat down with Jasmine Dottiwala and Tommy Ojo from our new charity partner, The Media Trust, and MG OMD's Head of Client Development, Kat Bozicevic. I started by asking Kat what we mean when we talk about a digital skills gap. Well, I think there's been a lot written around the digital skills gap and whether indeed there even is one. And the short answer for me is yes. A lot of people think there is one. Uh, Accenture puts the cost of that at $141 billion, And Deloitte have recently done a really good report showing that while it's shrinking, people are more confident in their new entrants, people are more confident their business can deliver on their digital visions, there's still an awful lot of room to grow. So, for example, in our industry, we're still seeing about 500 live biddable roles in the marketplace. I'll ask what my MD, Natalie Bell, asked in 2017. Why is that? Why has it not moved on at all? I wonder whether there's a question around articulation of what digital Mm. skills actually are. And um, so that's a really good point. Like, what is that? What are those digital skills that there is a gap in? I I think there have been some really useful big steps forward taken. There's a great report by the government talking about segmenting digital skills. So talking about the boundary between essential uh, digital skills and more specialised digital skills for the general workforce. So I think there's a role for schools and universities to look at helping people develop those essential skills. And then there's a whole piece around which we're still trying to crack around uh, those more technical skills and how to develop and nurture them in the talent that's already in the industry. Absolutely. You know, I think most of the time it's about teaching corporate partners and big companies that use business and digital skills that they need the younger talent. The younger talent need to be convinced that they already do this and they have transferable skills and it's trying to align them together. So I actually have 10 point plan checklist that I go through with young people when I'm speaking to them genuinely and I and I say the same thing to our corporate partners so we tend to specialize in our corporate partners being at the cross section of digital and print press and TV and radio so it's multimedia broadcasters and I always tell young people first of all that digital media is not social media because often they mistake the fact that they think when we say would you like to work in digital media they think it's all to do with websites and social media and it really isn't so you know I break down things like SEM and search engine marketing We talk about analytics because if you can't measure things, what's Mm. the point? You know, you can't manage them. Young people create content every day 
and they're throwing it out into the ether but they're not understanding data and analytics so we teach them how to measure it we teach them about email etiquette email marketing if you think about the fact that lots of young people these days don't have the basics that I uh, the ones that we train don't have the basic email etiquette that they need just to even approach a business for a new job and when you explain to them that all the things they're marketing whether they're selling clothes or YouTube videos or whether they want to be influencers if they don't know how to email market because when we think about social media young people jump from platform to platform all the time one minute they're on Instagram then they're on Snapchat then they're on Triller and then they're on TikTok and it could be anything whereas they rarely change their email addresses so when you think about the power of email marketing directly hitting young people it's about email marketing we teach corporate partners about mobile friendly you know young people if you think that each household now has about seven digital pluggable devices to hand every day that's a huge market of people they're missing young people know how to galvanize and leverage mobiles so you know yeah. companies really need to get on board with that strategy and planning young people know what they mean when they say we've had a thousand hits or ten thousand hits but actually just teaching them that that is a kpi you know in the same way that they have gone out and promoted themselves as influencers they could be using the same skill sets to put visibility onto a corporate or a company and so saying to them this is what a kpi is you're already measuring it for yourself but you could be doing it for your business so a lot of it these young people already know they're doing it organically i love the idea that those skills exist in young people regardless of how far through a traditional education program they've got for those who haven't followed that traditional education routes there's a lot of apprenticeship work going on in in our agency in particular to try to help people understand the context of those skills and, and what they do every day bringing that into their work and I think it's great to have a 10 point plan mm. that really just lays out for people uh, a framework of how they could look at their life experience beyond just things I've learned. Well one of the things that we do is sometimes we speed match so we'll bring 10 staff members in from a company with 10 young people and we'll say this is our 10 point plan teach each other so it's peer to peer teaching because often I think young people go oh they're going to tell us they're going to teach us something about their business but by the time they've finished the adults in the room find that the young people have taught them something and so they're managing upwards as well as downwards. And so, Tommy, what's your journey for getting into this industry? You're now working at the Media Trust. Um, was the digital advertising world even on your radar when you were studying? And how, how have you got to where you are? First of all, I just want to say I'm just sitting here listening to both of you guys and thinking, God, there is so much information that I need to take in. But I loved both of the points that you guys are saying that um, there's a 10-step plan and that, that the gap between the skills that we have that we're taught in educational environments to kind of where we can do it to employment opportunities are so important so I'm literally just taking a lot of mental notes um, <laughs> me too listen back to this podcast yeah. um, the way that I got in the media or digital um, skills industry is that I actually studied photography at uni um, I got really into it and then halfway through the year I realised this is not what I want to do anymore um, still finished and got my degree but I was really interested in social media and all things communication um, so I fell into a communications role through different roles before um, and during that time they actually 
advertised me to go into a vlogging workshop with Media Trust. Didn't know who Media Trust was or anything, but that day clearly has changed my life because now I work for them. Um, so I went to the workshop and I signed up and it was one day vlogging workshop teaching you how to create a vlog on your smartphone. And um, from there, once I did the session, a few months later, I ended up actually leaving my current workplace and I was on the hunt for something digital related, um, media related, because I realised that I have a strong skill set and passion for video. And during this programme, obviously I was creating vlogs and putting up content online. Fast forward all the way to the grand final, um, they actually put a job listing out for a a project coordinator role for the programme that I was on. So for me, it was just ringing alarm bells. I'm like, oh, like I really know everything about this programme. The job spec is basically what I'm looking for. Um, The way that I even found is that I followed them on Twitter just to keep up to date with any information that was coming through. So my previous manager who was working with me um, on the day of the grand final, I just went up to him and said, hey, look, I'm going to apply for this job. Is there anything that you can tell me about it or can I take five or ten minutes of your time? Um, And he actually advised me to give him a call the next day and through that communication um I ended up getting an interview and then went through all the different stages and at the end I got the role but um just thinking media like it isn't just kind of like a coordinator role of facilitating and doing like I'm also learning on the job every workshop mm. that I deliver I'm speaking to loads of different young people who are teaching me all these new methods um I went to a workshop last week and one of the tasks is that we get them to tell us what social media means to them and why do they use it and one of them actually used TikTok to show me the video so I was just completely blown away and just thought that it's crazy how the generation of today are showing us different and diverse ways of answering a simple question somebody could have just come up to me and showed me a simple video but they actually went through another social media platform showed how they edited it and produced it and then sent it to me so that flipping roles is super interesting particularly when you think about recruitment and cat i don't know whether you found this at mgomd but traditionally you would think that there is a role and people have to sell themselves to the company to get that role but i feel like if there is this lack of skilled people is that shifting and actually you need to be selling yourselves to the best candidates because there's a shortage Yes, absolutely. I mean, I, one of the, the questions I'd, I'd like to raise around digital skills in particular is there was a quote from, I think, the Deloitte report, the, the half-life of a technical digital skill is two and a half years. There is a question wow. for me about whether you will ever be sufficiently skilled, if we're right to say that we'll ever be able to completely close the digital skills gap. And that's why, as an agency, where we are our kind of hiring mantra, and this is common to a number of industries, is hire for attitude train for skills Mm. so we always like to make sure we've got a really good comprehensive training program in place to make sure the technical skills that are being learned like the the vlogging and the new platforms that are emerging are keeping us and also our employees really relevant to the changing media landscape and so that's the first thing we'll do we'll we'll make sure that we're looking for the right attitude and the people with the right attitude are abundant in generation z you know we really want to speak to change makers, people who will be curious and ask why, you know, to challenge us as sort of the establishment of the industry and to help us do things in a different way. So we'd really like the help of Generation Z to catalyse the change in our agency. Part of that attraction to a new generation of talent is how are we going to be worthy of them? So to your point around your interests and all of the uh, the social media um, passion that you have, you know, we need to celebrate not just accommodate but celebrate Generation Z side gigs and the fact that this is just going to be one 
strand of a complete life for them. One of the things that you mentioned is is the idea of reverse mentoring. So, uh, you know, an old way of doing that might have been to get together sort of a group of the youngest talent and and ask them to set them a brief and ask them to answer that back to the board. But instead, what we found is that people are more comfortable having that conversation one-to-one. So uh, we're putting in place a programme where our senior staff have a reverse mentor and they represent those ideas back collectively to give that voice just a little bit more um, confidence. Uh, So there are a number of easy wins. I do think there's a role for wider, more wholesale industry change around becoming more worthy of the Generation Z. Yeah, and the point about... uh the fact that a career is no longer just a career and it happens alongside your life. People, particularly young people, want a job that is actually part of their life and which they really enjoy. And so, like, Jasmine, do you think that the digital advertising media industry is an appealing one to young people? Or do you think it's got a bad reputation and when people are thinking about going into work they're actually a bit turned off potentially by this industry. It's interesting that you mention that actually because I don't think young people know what the digital industry is and one of the programmes that we do at Media Trust called Creativity Works, we take young people out to visit all our corporate partners' buildings. So every Thursday and Friday they may spend the whole day at an advertiser like BBH or Edelman or they may go to a digital tech company all day like Twitter or Facebook or Snap and they go there, they have a tour, they look around, they meet the staff... Young people like them tell them how they got into those companies, um, what are the skills that they need. And it's as Kat mentioned earlier, it's often not the company saying to the young person, show us and prove to us that you're good enough for this job. It's the young person saying to the company, show me, prove to me that this is a company that I want to live my best yeah, life what at have you got to offer? and work. It's, what have you got yeah. to offer? Exactly. And it really is all about that. And often young people will come back and I mentor, well, most of us at Media Trust mentor younger people and the feedback comes back and it's it's young people saying, they don't look like me, they don't sound like me, they don't dress like me, the culture is different, I don't belong here, I don't fit in here. And sometimes you can very quickly change a young person's mind and you can show them why and how they add value. And once they understand that, they're more comfortable. But the problem is there are some young people who just don't think they fit in because the culture is so very different. And it's literally the way people speak. It's not inclusive, the way people dress or behavioural patterns. So it can be really difficult. But I think the key messaging to young people is digital skills can help you in any job role, not just in the digital industry. Because nowadays, in every industry, you are going to need digital skills. And the quicker you help them see that, and you know, it's really crass, but one thing I say to young people is they often look at my career as a broadcaster for TV and radio, and they'll say, I want to do what you do. And I say to them, actually, you don't. Because, you know, interns in my career start, well, in TV and radio, they tend to start on 20k uh, annually. Interns in digital and advertising could start between 30 and 40, as entry-level roles. And quickly, young people from socio lower socioeconomic backgrounds will hear that. That's all they hear, because all they're looking for is stability. They're looking for a way out of the life that they're in at the moment. I might say to them, we'll put you in for a programme, you'll get a credit and a qualification, you'll get a journalistic NTCJ, and that will last you for life. That should be the thing that they would listen to, but they don't. If they were coming from a middle-class educated background, they would. If they're coming from a very much lower um, socioeconomic background, all they're hearing is... I need financial stability. How can I get myself to the next level? And they will hear that. And that little bit of messaging there will help. But actually, that, that's one way of getting people into the industry. But as you say, 
they're only going to stay six months if they get there and they don't have any role models, people that look like them and that people can talk their language. So uh, tell me how important is that for you when you're visiting agencies going around in the media industry? Do you feel like there is enough representation? We're representing the people that we're advertising to? For me, it's super important. So just kind of reflecting on what Jasmine said is speaking on behalf of all young people and um, we want to do a job that one makes us happy that is obviously financially stable and we're also enjoying but we're in a generation where working a job for around two years already sounds like too much of my own time um, I, oh, how um, things have changed <laughs> I think it's super important that we get a lot of experiences wherever we are and we're upskilling ourselves as much as possible and then able to transfer those skills into a new place. Thinking of like different demographics in the workplace, I think it's super important to be able to go into somewhere and say, okay, there's loads of different ethnicities here, loads of different genders, etc. I can see myself fitting in here and being part of the community here. You wouldn't want to walk into a room and think, goodness, I stand out like a sore thumb because then you feel like every move that you're doing or every work that you're contributing to is always going to be, not misjudged, but just kind of looked at like, oh, okay, she did this. And like, it's not the same as a group of the same, like ethnicity would piece together. I mean, Mm -hmm. back in the day, it wasn't very much diverse in some certain workplaces or companies. It still isn't. And they're always screaming more diversity, you know, more young people, but they're actually not actively hiring or they will open it to that demographic and then they won't get anywhere further. Um, So it's one thing that I started to notice this year that wherever I want to go or wherever I'm based at, like I want to be able to sit in a room and think, okay, I relate to you. You're as young as me or we're similar age mates or we get along. And it's a community where I think, okay, like they're not going to look at me as she's the new young diverse girl in the office like instead she's this girl that we hired who can do this role and yeah that's kind of what is most important but as I said like we're very fluid so in like I love years that time. you know you're unapologetic <laughs> in my generation my parents would have said you'll go in there you'll be the new girl you'll make teas and coffees for a few months and you'll just get ahead by just working hard whereas Tommy's generation are like unapologetically Mm-mm. ambitious they're like I want to live my best life yeah. I want to know what you can do for me and it's brilliant I love it and if it doesn't work out then <laughs> bye, bye. <laughs> <laughs> And that tokenism in the workplace would lead to tokenism in the work that is being produced as well. So you're right, it's got to be authentic and and run through the DNA of a company. I feel like we could talk about this for such a long time. (laughs) I've got one last question for you, Tommy. You've been doing this now for a few months. You've been with the Media Trust? Oh, um, no, like almost a year and a half. A year and a half, wow. You've seen a lot of our industry. What is your dream job at this point? I actually don't believe in a dream job. I am very passionate about different things... So, like, I love, obviously, media, I love YouTube, I love music, I love financial jargon, I love interior design. So I don't really see any one of those being my dream job for the rest of my life. I have a lot of different streams that I'm really interested into. Um, I like to move around a lot and experience new things. So at this current stage of my life, I haven't got a clue what my dream job will be. But I know that I want to try loads of different skills and opportunities where... I can also do a lot of self-teaching but then pass on my knowledge to the younger generation and just say that don't feel like you have to kind of go through one narrow pathway like you might try this job doesn't work out you might try another one it doesn't work out until you kind of find your happy 
ground. So yeah, <laughs> you'll have your place. <laughs> the future is fluid. <laughs> if there's one final thing that I will say I've learned from working with both businesses and young people, it's that it's easy to attract and educate and train young people and get them into entry-level jobs. Retention and pipelining them into their next step of their career is the difficult thing, but mm. what really helps is mentors. If you can mentor individual um, young people with people in the industry, not only, as Kat mentioned, do you have that reverse mentoring going on but actually that young person is much more likely to feel nurtured cared and half of it is about the pastoral care often it's the soft skills as well as the hard skills they need to be taught it's about combining them all to get to that perfect final relationship with their career cat jasmine tommy thank you so much for coming on the iob podcast thank you thank you, for thank you very us. much that was fascinating. A lot to take away and think about. And if you want to find out more about our work with Middlesex University and what changes you can make, visit iobuk.com slash research. IOB UK. Now, who can forget the 12th of February 2019, the world's first national anti-click-through rate day, when we called out clickheads and appealed to the advertising industry to take a more complex, a more mature approach than click-through rates to measure the effectiveness of their campaigns. One year on, and we celebrated again last week. To dig into the detail behind the puns, I caught up with our new Head of Research and Measurement, Elizabeth Lane. Welcome, Elizabeth, to the IB UK podcast. Thank you for having me. Um, How are you finding the IB so far? I'm really enjoying it. I uh, joined in mid-November, so I guess that's nearly three months in. Long long enough to be well embedded by now. And and where, where did you come from? I came directly from working in government, so that big scary place in Westminster. Terrifying. I was working for the Department for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, uh, and I was heading up their research and analysis team for media policy, um, which directly linked to the IAB, involved a lot of work with um, advertisers and publishers and looking at the whole mix of online advertising and how it works in the market. So it was quite relevant to lots of the things the IB is doing now, which I guess is the reason why I'm here. Absolutely. And you know our industry inside out already, Well, uh, which is very useful. Um, But we're not here to talk about your CV. We are, in fact, here to talk about National Anti-Click-Through Rate Day um, and measurement. So uh, last Wednesday, the 12th of February, was indeed National Anti-Click-Through Rate Day. Last year in 2019, we celebrated the first ever National Anti-Click-Through Rate Day, where we called on people to abandon the vanity metrics on which they so heavily rely um, and re-evaluate how to measure the effectiveness of their campaigns and looking at longer term solutions. This year we returned, we released a film where we watched in on some recovering clickheads talking about how their journey was going so far in measuring more effectively. But while that is all very good fun, there's a very serious reason why we're doing this, and that is about measurement, as we were saying. And last year, we released our measurement toolkit, which gave advertisers and agencies guidance on better ways to measure their digital campaigns. So what are the headlines? How should they be doing it? Well, I think the first thing you have to think about overall is what is it that you want to get out of your campaign or whatever it is you're trying to do online, you need to set some clear objectives for yourself. And from that point on, if you have that clear plan in your head, what is the objective? What's the primary aim of what I'm trying to do? You can then start to think about what the right metrics are to try and measure that, measure that effectively. Ideally, you don't want to add too much in. I think one of the problems and one of the things that um, National Anti-Click-Through Rate Day was trying to move away from is 
vanity metrics that don't actually really tell you much about the story. It might give you a very short-term answer as to how many people have clicked on the thing that I've put out here, but it doesn't tell you long-term how and if you have achieved your goal. So I think the very first thing you need to do is sit there and think, what am I aiming for? And then once you've got that sorted, you can then start to talk to other people in your team, talk to your insight and measurement team, your agency, whoever it is you're working with, to say, okay, this is what I want to get, this is where I want to get to, what are the metrics that I need to then start measuring in order to see whether it's been effective or not. So what alternatives are there to click-through rates? Well, of course, I would say that it does depend on what you're trying to achieve. But let's take some examples. So you have got a new brand campaign out and you want to know whether that campaign has had an uplift in brand awareness. You've got a new product out and you want to test how it's done. A very typical, well-worn methodology is to do a brand study. So that would be where you have a typical control group and an exposure group and you test the effects of exposing one group to your brand campaign to see whether it's had an uplift in those metrics that you want to measure. So you commission an agency to show people the brand and how it looked on the site that you were using and to that group you then ask them before and afterwards how do they feel about your brand now that they've seen the advert. You then compare that to the group who didn't see the brand and see whether it's had a, a difference. That is a very trustworthy and very robust way of measuring brand uplift. You could do much more sophisticated things with digital as well. You can do things like A-B testing, which might be a terminology that some of the listeners to the podcast have heard before, but that's basically where you would experiment in real time with the amount of traffic that you get to your website to see where, if you place an advert in one part of the site versus another, which one is going to get the higher traffic, the more uh, impressions, the more scrolls. You can do really sophisticated things where you have lots of different versions on your site and you show it to different groups of people and you can see which one has the better traffic. So that's a sort of a very sophisticated one that is very specific to digital and is one that is quite popular. You can do things like attribution modelling, um, which people talk about a lot in measurement, but that's really to understand more about of all the different tiny conversions that you want to see on your site so you want somebody to eventually buy a pair of shoes you have lots of different adverts in lots of different places and you want to be able to model which ones of those small things are leading to the eventual sale Um, you can start modeling using a framework to analyze how much weighting you should be putting on those different areas and again that is a long-term brand building exercise to see what the links are to the eventual sales and then there are other things you could do as well so um, we have um Something which sounds a lot more complicated than it is, econometrics, which often also gets called marketing mixed modelling. But that is looking long term at the predictability of what your marketing and comms spend might be on the final sales purchase or the sales uplift. So building up a data set over a lot of time, you can start to see what are the drivers from different areas of media spend to leading to that uplift in sales at the end. Those are much better long-term types of methodology that you should be using to measure your brand building exercises and how campaigns are being effective at changing people's behaviour. Click-throughs are useful as a short-term metric sometimes, but when you're thinking long-term about how to build a brand, you should be thinking about those other methodologies. And our measurement toolkit has all of that, so you can go onto the IAB's website and find out more there. Very well plugged. Who needs marketing? Um, So think about your objectives, work out what the right metrics are to measure them, and then speak to your agency about the techniques that you could use, which we've all heard from Elizabeth there. And in short, there is no excuse for being a clickhead in future. Thank you very much for coming on the IOB UK podcast. Thank you very much, Tom.
There you have it. Now you've got no excuse for being a clickhead. Check out iabuk.com slash clickhead to watch our blockbuster film and more importantly, download our measurement toolkit so that you can get as excited as we are about econometrics and attribution. The IAB UK podcast. Next up, it's time to sit down with a big name from the industry for a quick-fire Q&A. Before the flu struck, James caught up with Paul Gubbins to grill him on everything from programmatic to his reading habits. Here's what happened. So we're back with 10 quick-fire questions. This is the part of the podcast where we invite some of our favourite members in to talk about life, work and everything in between uh, and all in 60 seconds flat. And making his return to the IBUK podcast is none other than, than Paul Gubbins. Thank you very much, James. And welcome back. I mean, not many people <laughs> get the honour of, of getting the invite back. Thank you for having me again. Season 1, episode 8, our researchers tell me uh, you were on talking about header bidding. Oh, wow. Okay. That is trying to make the very... <laughs> Complex thing, very, very we referred to you back then as a programmatic supreme. I don't think anything's changed, has it? Well, a few things. But <laughs> I'm happy to take that. You know the rules here, Paul. It's 10 questions uh, and you get 60 seconds to answer them. Are you ready? Let's go. What are you reading right now? Um, I recently bought the Trevor McDonald biography at the airport. Give us a classic Paul Gubbins interview question. Um, talk me through the last piece of trade press you read and um, give me a synopsis. Hmm. Favourite programmatic acronym? S-P-O, that stands for Supply Path Optimization. Very nice. Uh, what question do you hate being asked the most? <laughs> this is easy. Why am I still single? <laughs> <laughs> um, who's your industry hero? Um, a chap called Dr. Boris that um, co-founded, well, founded um, a company called IP on Web. Um, very behind the scenes, but absolutely instrumental in the uh, kind of birth of programmatic advertising, really. Nice. Uh, if you had two minutes to teach someone something new, what would it be? The opening accords to uh, Wonderwall. Oh, nice. That's very good. We should have got one here. Uh, what's the last thing you shared on social media? Oh, good question. It would have been a post this morning on Twitter um, about the recent Roku earnings report and how they're integrating uh, a DSP they acquired called DataZoo. Who would play you in a biopic of yourself? <laughs> Probably uh, Hugh Grant, um, for, no, for no other reason other than the fact he rocks a good tweed blazer. Unbelievable. How much cryptocurrency do you own? Not enough. Oh, interesting. Um, and finally, you're an Instagram breakfast aficionado. Describe your perfect breakfast. Uh, this, this one's easy. So it has to have black pudding, mm. has to have a side of salmon, um, has to have some sourdough, a healthy helping of avocado and a very strong black coffee. Unbelievable, it's everything there. Um, Paul Gubbins, that's your 10 quickfire questions in 60 seconds. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you for having me for a second time around. <laughs> and if you want to read more from Paul and what he's got going on at the moment, check him out on LinkedIn and his Things to Know in AdTech Today. It's a brilliant, brilliant read. Wonderful stuff. That's all for this week. Thanks for joining me and don't forget to share, rate and spread the word. For more information on what the IAB does and how you can get in touch, visit iabuk.com or at iabuk on Twitter and Instagram. And as ever, we'd love to hear your feedback. Just email podcast at iabuk.com. Pending a full recovery, James will be back in two weeks with some more industry experts and a look at what headlines have been dominating our feeds this month. And in the meantime, don't be a clickhead. IAB UK, building a sustainable future for digital advertising.